listeners and welcome to Office Hours on KUCI, the show where I bring you conversations about research with professors across the various fields at UC Irvine. I'm Sabelle Kaler and Pride Month just wrapped up. In honor of that, today I'm talking to Dr. Jennifer Terry about LGBT histories. Dr. Terry is a professor and the chair of Gender and Sexuality Studies at UC Irvine. First of all, thank you so much for being on the show. It's my pleasure. To start off, what have been some of the focuses of your research? Um, I have done a lot. I've had different chapters in my life in terms of the, you know, the focus of my research has shifted a little bit. But overall, I think I've been uh, interested for many years in the relationship between bodies and authority. So, and medical authority has been a really strong um, sort of through line for all, all of the most of the research that I've done. I'm really interested in how medicine as a profession, as a way of thinking, as in, you know, a kind of modern formation uh, has been authorized to enable bodies to do certain things and also in some, in some instances restrict bodies from doing certain things. And so the, the focus on sexuality has been one that I've been you know, very interested in for a long time in more recent years, and I think you're going to ask me a lot about that first body of work, and I'm very happy to talk about it. But just very briefly, I found myself in the last decade really being very interested in thinking about war and medicine and the relationship between uh, deliberate wounding, which is what you know constitutes a kind of practice of war, and deliberate healing, which is the you know acts of medicine. And we, you know, that's a very different type of project because I didn't deal with sexuality as much in that book that came out a few years ago. But I think what I have been interested in all along is this question of how, you know, what bodies are enabled to do and which bodies are enabled to do what. And so, you know, that's kind of like a very large umbrella for the, for the work I've done. And in your first book, as you said, an American Obsession, Science, Medicine, and Homosexuality in Modern Society, you talk about how society's perspectives on the LGBTQ community have changed over the last several decades as a result of how scientists and doctors have studied sexuality. What drew you to this topic? You know, I was in, I went to graduate school in the middle of the 1980s, and after I graduated from college, before I went to graduate school, I was living in San Francisco, and um, I was, you know, 21 years old when the first cases of this mysterious cancer were being reported in the local newspapers and you know, national newspapers too. And I was living in the Castro District and um, working at a job downtown. And you know, uh, a lot of my friends and neighbors were getting sick, and you know, and everybody was starting to get very, very nervous about what this meant because the severity of the illness was so so great. And very early on, it was, um, you know, provisionally named the gay cancer. So it, you know, aligned a sexual identity or sexual orientation with a deadly disease. And that just unleashed a lot of the stigmatization um, and, you know, contempt for gay people that was, I think, born out of fear. People were fearful that this, you know, they were 
going to be, their own lives would be endangered. But, you know, I immediately was drawn into activism at, you know, ground zero um, and was doing a lot of uh, kind of emotional support work for people that were coming down with the illness. And, um, you know, I just thought, geez, this, the, how quickly the contempt for queer people, you know, was, you know, across the nation. And I, I thought there's a longer history here and I need to learn, I need to understand what in the past gives rise to this kind of response so, so immediately. And so then I decided, I, you know, I was, I applied to graduate school and, and got accepted at UC Santa Cruz in the History of Consciousness program. And the, the way that program is set up is it's very interdisciplinary and students come with a topic that they want to study. And if the faculty there believe that it's, um, you know, something they can advise upon and help with, then you get accepted and you can write that dissertation you conceive of early on even before you apply. So I, I ended up writing a dissertation which was the seed of the book that you're, you, you cited the very beginning, the kernel, you know, which was how do we explain the homophobic, you know, backlash that was unleashed by the AIDS epidemic? And uh, so I studied immunology. I studied all these ways of thinking about the body's response to disease and looked at the kind of political rhetoric and grammar that you can detect from even scientific discourse. So that's kind of the origin of the project. It came really out of a, a kind of concern, a, a basic um, urgent concern to understand, uh, you know, the suffering of people in my community. Absolutely. What are some common oversimplifications or misconceptions that you come across when studying queer history? That's such a great question. Um, you know, I, I, I teach it too. I teach queer history. So it's, uh, it's I always have to kind of like um, think about that question a lot. Um, a common misconception that I've encountered is, you know, that things are always getting better. You know, that each generation builds upon, you know, the ignorance of the past and dispels that ignorance and, you know, gets more and more enlightened. And the problem with that is we, they, it overshadows some really amazing activities, people, institutions, art forms that are forgotten in that idea of the march of progress. And so I was super pleasantly surprised when I delved into this history that I'm, you know, that you're asking about and found all these amazing, rebellious and, you know, alive and vibrant, resisting, you know, people resisting uh, oppression from periods way before our own, you know, so like, that would be one thing that, you know, things are always getting better. Um, I, you know, the, resisting that misconception um, is, is so important to do. Um, I guess that, you know, oversimplifications, um, maybe that, uh, that sexual orientation is the same for everybody, that, you know, as an inborn, inherent thing, you know. Um, I believe that sexuality is more um, pliable than that, and, and so sexual orientation is too. Uh, it's different things to different people, and I think I understand very much why queer people, myself included, at times have wanted to say, I was just born this way, you know, the Lady Gaga anthem. And that's per that's perfectly fine, you know, but it it paper it kind of um, obscures the qualities of really, inc of, of really um, deep 
I don't want to use the word choice, but of, you know, the ways that we take, take these journeys through our lives, take us in many different directions if we're lucky to live long. And the, you know, I know that you're going to ask me a question a little bit later about the changing identities and the proliferation of new identities. And to me, that seems really wonderful. And I, I encourage it in my teaching and thinking, you know, about how um, there isn't a fixed thing called sexual orientation or gender. You know, it's, it's multiplying in really, really, to me, very wonderful ways. I agree. When did the scientific and medical communities in the U.S. begin to first start studying homosexuality? Is it earlier than a lot of people might imagine? It's important, I think, when thinking about this history, that uh, what happened in the United States around the turn of from the 19th to the 20th century, the 1880s forward, um, built upon some important ideas that were being generated by European doctors and scientists around uh, questions of neurology, about uh, endocrinology, you know, fields that were not yet delineated as specialties, but they were kind of the prototypical versions of those things. Um, and so doctors in Vienna, in, in Berlin, in London, and in Paris were, and scientists too, uh, were very influential in the, you know, what ended up happening in the United States. But in, and this is, you know, around the 1880s into the 20th century, what makes the United States so interesting is its own peculiar history as a settler colonial nation um, made up of primarily of immigrants and also formerly enslaved or indentured people. Uh, a lot more demographic diversity, but a lot of inequality as well. And so in you know the early part of the 20th century, of course the United States is already established as a nation and it's you know gone through this bloody civil war a couple de uh, decades earlier, but it's growing massively and rapidly and it's urbanizing in certain ways. You know, it, it, so what I did, what I'm you know, interested in looking at with the American case is that met the medical profession was also stuck gaining more credibility than it had previously enjoyed. It you know, wasn't so prestigious in the 19th century to be a doctor in the United States. They were generally thought to be on a spectrum of blood letters, you know. But as soon as medical authority and scientific authority started merged together um, in the United States, the, that community of thinkers became very influential in terms of laws that were developed and in cases of, you know, prescription of treatment for people who were seen as sexually deviant. Um, you know, it, it, it's a long history, uh, relatively speaking, um, goes back much, you know, earlier into the 20th century than a lot of people think. And do you think the two world wars changed how the U.S. viewed gender and sexuality? Yes, I do. And there's some wonderful scholarship on both of them. World War II, you know, because it was such a massive mobilization of uh, drafted troops, um, service people, mostly men, but some women too, and, and, you know, and working in other kinds of capacities as ambulance drivers and medics and so on. A lot of people left home, their little small towns, their little, you know, uh, communities to go into, you know, to, to be deployed overseas and meet people, you know, from different backgrounds within their own, to be serving with other people that, you know, were, um, you know, new to them and, and forming an important community of support, you know, under the pressures of battle. 
And after the war, a lot of those people did not go back to their little towns. They went to cities. And they, you know, they, they enjoyed the kind of anonymity of the city to, to sort of remake themselves. So both, I mean, World War II especially, but one as well, that was a, f a feature that some historians have looked at, you know, really provided a context for the emergence of queer communities because people didn't, you know, have to stay in their small, you know, conventional homes and raise children and do that. They had a little bit more freedom. Right. And going on from that, how did the medical and scientific explanations of sexuality start to change after the war, particularly from the 1960s onwards, as all these other attitudes about sex were changing? You know, it's interesting. If you look at the, uh, how economic shifts are, you know, make certain things possible, they're not fully determinative, they're not the only factor. But uh, John D'Amelio, who's a wonderful historian, gay historian and historian of, of gay life, uh, wrote this fantastic essay that many of us have used. And, and it's been criticized subsequently for you know, being a little too um, monolithic. But John has responded to those criticisms very you know, graciously and has you know, thought about uh, what he might have gotten wrong. But it's, it has a title that's something like Capitalism and Gay Identity. And what he argues in that piece is that the you know wage earning the the requirement to earn a wage and to be in the workforce uh, and to and with coupled with these other factors of you know urbanization and the possibility for anonymity in cities that you know you, you wouldn't have, be able to experience in smaller towns gave rise to opportunities for people to have a slightly broader uh, set of opportunities for determining what they were going to do with their and men enjoyed this more than women did and white men more than other women or people of color because of the you know the racial hierarchy in the United States but being able to make you know a living on your own um, and that is a condition you know of wage labor that there are certain options open up and you know and it was a huge thing for women to be not betrothed to a man in order to you know live your life and so he makes the argument that economic shifts really had a lot to do with opening up the opportunity for people to start forming queer communities. I think that, you know, they, there, there was not a singular voice, you know, in, in, amongst scientists or doctors about this. In fact, what's really interesting is you, you find in the historical records some um, medical professionals who were quite, relatively speaking, sympathetic to queer people. Um, saw them as uh, in, in need of help rather than punishment. Uh, you know, the, the medical uh, voice of care rather than, you know, uh, rather than punishment was, was kind of significant. Although, you know, with that, pity comes along, you know, as a sentiment sometimes. So rather than a care which has full respect for the person who is seen as an outlier, it sometimes was coupled with the sense of, well, well, we'll take care of you. We've just got to get rid of this problem you have, rather than accepting the variation of human expression and sexuality and gender. It was like, we got to get rid of this because you're suffering too much. Um, so, you know, it's a mixed bag. But I think that uh, another important response to that question is that there were queer people, really amazing people, 
who looked at themselves and said, we are not normal. And this may be a good thing. You know, so not all of them um, were tragically suffering this sense of being an outlier. They were concerned about their safety and the safety of their communities. And they turned to, to authorities, medical authorities in particular, and scientists to ask them, ask their opinion and ask their, you know, uh, about their knowledge to help people coping with this feeling of being different. And that, you know, and that sometimes was a harmonious discussion between, you know, queer lay people and, and authorities, and sometimes it was fraught with conflict. Um, but that dynamic of care and, and queer people holding medical authorities accountable to what do you mean by care? You know, if, if care is, is subjecting me to electroshock therapy, no thanks. I don't, you know, but if it's listening to me and listening to us as a community and, and you know, participating as someone in authority to reform laws or to back, get, get the medical treatments off, you know, that are so dangerous and so debilitating, get, get rid of those. It's a, you know, there, there was a kind of very dialectical back and forth between uh, people in the queer community and medical authorities that moved things in a kind of fits and starts way. Right. I saw that you'd also written an article about this. Uh, we often see people bringing up, you know, homosexual behavior occurring in animals, in nature, as evidence. Why do you think people tend to get so hung up on this? <laughs> this is such a good question. Um, in the 1990s, and this remember this is about you know a decade and a half into the AIDS epidemic, and and there's a lot going on with uh, queer organizing and 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 you know breaking into kind of the mainstream media, <clears throat> you know with uh, television shows and you know talk shows that were like you know interested in what's going on with you know homosexual people. And so one of the things that happened around that time was this turn toward animals. It wasn't the first time that people had tried to project from, the, from animal behavior what, what human behavior meant. I mean, it's a very long history going back to Charles Darwin, right? And possibly even earlier than that, for sure earlier. Um, but to me, it was fascinating to watch people project a lot of meanings onto animal behavior in such a huge and wide variety of ways. Um, some to denounce, you know, homosexuality as animalistic itself, because look, it's bestial. Look, only, the, you know, look at how the, the, in the animal kingdom, how this plays out. Um, and then others would argue that it's perfectly natural because we see, quote, gay penguins or, you know, two male penguins at a zoo that seem to, you know, behave with great affection toward one another. And, you know, so it was really, to me, fascinating to see how animals became a kind of prop for these narratives across a wide variety of, you know, political perspectives. Um, and then there, there was a great deal of humor that I discovered in that, too, because, you know, um, animals are really interesting. And, you know, um, people were having fun with that. Um, and I also am a, a, an avid pet owner. I have a dog that I walk all the time. And every, you know, the most common thing when I first got her 10 years ago, the little kids in my neighborhood, which was downtown Long Beach, wanted to know is, is it a boy or a girl? First thing. 
you know, and, and after that, you know, that either became really central to the conversation of interacting or became moot. Um, but I thought that was so interesting that little kids just want to know. Those kids did. Now, it, already, over the years have passed, that question is less commonly asked of me by little kids. I think that indicates a change in the generation that's coming up. You know, they don't want to necessarily need to know immediately what is, which of the binary is this. Um, so anyway, long, that long way of saying, I think that animals continue to be a projection screen for all kinds of ways that humans talk about what's proper and improper behavior. And the, you know, the, the lovely thing about that is, is animals are so complicated that they cannot be finally enlisted to a singular political position, you know? They're just too, they're too amazing. They're too, too diverse. And do you think that the scientific study of sexuality, trying to figure out, you know, why does this happen? or what makes someone a certain way. Do you think this is inherently problematic in terms of gay rights, or can it be done in a way that is positive and helpful? You know, that is another fabulous question. Um, I think that it can be, I, I think, you know, speaking broadly, scientific uh, inquiry can be, and is very often uh, inherently valuable. Now, scientific inquiry is, is uh, you know, always situated in particular historical, economic, political context. It doesn't exist in some vacuum outside of people. Scientists are people too, as I like to say in my gender and science class, which means they're always, you know, these inquiries are always embedded in larger dynamics. And so the question is, what are you, if you're studying sexuality, what are you looking for? What is the hypothesis? If you're trying to nail down what makes people desire one way or another, I would want to ask why, you know, what, of what value is that outcome or that soft, that, you know, that outcome that you're seeking? And I come at this largely as highly skeptical because as a queer woman, um, and also as somebody who studied the history of racism within science, I'm very often, you know, aware of how scientific inquiry when it comes to questions about human difference is very often tied to power dynamics that are unacknowledged, that are embedded, you know, that they're almost, they're just taken for granted. So what's going on, for example, in the 18th and 19th century with all of this kind of obsessive focus on racial difference between, you know, the Orientals and the Africans and the, you know, and the Indians, and, you know, that was the language at the time. Um, you know, what's, what's going on there? Who wants to know what makes people different? Now, if the scientific study of sexuality involves centrally the, the beauty of, of desire and, you know, you know, like the way you think about how is desire expressed in the body, how is it perhaps even registered in, in the way the brain looks under imaging technology, you know, what's going on with hormones and endocrinology helps here to think about... Um, pleasure, to me, that's fine. I mean, that would be wonderful. It depends on what your main goal is here. If you're just trying to sort people out and put them in boxes, not, not you know, that I'm not, I think is super problematic. But if you're inquiring about the mystery of something that's amazing, like desire, go for it. And uh, would you say that 
the gay liberation movement was deeply tied to these other movements of the time, the civil rights movement, the women's liberation movement, and possibly the anti-war movement? Yes, we're talking about the 1960s, 68, and into the early 70s. Yeah, it's really amazing. I mean, there were a lot of queer people that were involved in the civil rights movement. Uh, one, you know, the, Martin, the Reverend Martin Luther King's deputy, if you will, I mean, you know, the, his right-hand man was Bayard Rustin, who was an African-American gay man, who was the architect of the March on Washington in 1963. Um, he was also arrested in Pasadena um, through a police entrapment ac activity for uh, you know, seeking sex in a public park, and he, you know, faced jail time for that. Um, so he, you know, he was not out, out, out gay man, but he was a gay man who is very, you know, was central to a lot of the activities of the civil rights movement. He's better known than many, but there, there were a lot of queer people in, um, you know, in, in that movement. Um, and there was also a great deal, I think, of cross-pollination of ideas. Like, what is liberation? What do we mean by that? You know, what, you know, the, the anti-authority, uh, well, I shouldn't put it that way, but the, the anti-war movement was a, a youth movement to a large extent, experimental, had a lot to do with free love, you know, so it's like make love, not war. And so it, even if there weren't, um, Queer identified people in those movements. They were people. Uh, the the nineteen sixty eight was a turning point for really thinking about how do we want to live our lives. And women were sick and tired of being forced into being you know wives and mothers only. Um, they wanted to have more economic opportunities. They wanted to have more educational opportunities. And and a lot of I think you know uh, in, in addition to what I've said, which is there were already queer people in these other movements. The, I think gay liberation and LGBTQ liberation took many of those uh, questioning of authority politics that were borrowed from these other movements, including the labor movement, um, to articulate a right to love. And that they're, they're so, to me, I don't, I can't see them as separate. They, they you know, for, and as a person that was 10 years old when 1968 happened, all that stuff was just flashing before my eyes and I realized as my life unfolded that, that was all enabling me to become a person that I was able to become so I'm very very grateful to people in those movements for seeding that you know for, for pollinating that ground. Absolutely and how do you think the AIDS crisis impacted this the gay liberation movement and how the public in general perceived the LGBT community? You know, it's interesting because while I did mention and I, you know, that, that there was like an immediate backlash against uh, gay liberation because, you know, here's how the logic went. See, they spent so much time in bathhouses having sex with each other that they're killing each other. That proves that this lifestyle is deadly, you know, all that kind of, and there was a certain kind of Christian evangelicism that kicked in with that rhetoric and discourse. Um, you know, the culture wars of the 1980s and, you know, really demonized um, gay people uh, and took the opportunity of the epidemic to just really ramp up that negative rhetoric. Um, then at the same time, in a weird, what might seem to be paradoxical, but I think it's all part of a similar logic. 
the federal government under Ronald Reagan was not acknowledging that this was a crisis because it wasn't, in their view, happening to them. Uh, you know, and so famously, Reagan didn't utter the word AIDS or the sound AIDS until this last year in office after being in a two-term president. So, you know, there's on the one hand this really hyperbolic, loud response of, of contempt and, and, and hatred, and then this weird deafening silence, you know, over, you know, at a different level. And then the amazing thing about people who are touched by the suffering of others and it motivates them to care and to start getting active. Um, straight identified allies, straight identified loved ones, you know, AIDS brought people out of the closet because, you know, you could kind of keep your low profile with your family as long as you're, you know, you go home and visit them and then you go back to your real life. But when you get sick and you're dying, you're, that outs you, you know what I mean? So a lot of families confronted for the first time, their sons, their uncles, their brothers, as you know, people who they didn't fully know. And now they were in the position of speaking for them and caring for them. And a lot of families did throw their, you know, did, did turn their backs on, on, on family members who were um, dying because it, they weren't equipped in their own way to accept that, but a bunch of them did uh, kick in and start to help form a multi, you know, a, a, multi, a very, you know, strong response to that kind of um, hatred. Um, so it, it did, it played, and it was a double edge at least, maybe more than two edges, sword, you know, the AIDS epidemic because of these things that I've just kind of outlined. Right. Could you talk a little bit about the treatment of LGBTQ people within the military and how that currently stands today? Sure. Um, that's a, there's a wonderful longer history about, you know, the relative leniency of, of toward gay troops during World War II because there was such a demand for troops that, you know, um, Alan Barabee, who's a, a historian who's no longer with us, but he wrote this wonderful book called Coming Out Under Fire. And it was made into a documentary by Arthur Dong. And it, in it, he, he talks in great detail, did wonderful oral history and archival history about how buddies in the military became lovers. And they may have not ever, you know, had that opportunity before um, because they, you know, but because they're away from home, they're away from the expectation they're going to have to a family, you know, that strangely war actually made love, you know, it's, it's a, you know, an interesting uh, moment in, in the history. Um, the, after World War II uh, and the, you know, the, the return of the troops and, the, you know, back into civilian life, what's really interesting is you see a much, you know, the development of a much more um, hostile response to any such things within the military during the Korean War and, and later um, because of, you know, the, a, a bunch of things. But I think, first of all, there wasn't the troop shortages. So, you, you know, the cracking down on, on affections between men or between women was something the military did to sort of purge its ranks. Um, so that it was a huge purge in the, in the 19, late 40s and 50s. And that is, you know, there's an interesting parallel with the purge of the, in, in the State Department, of the U.S. State Department, and other branches of government uh, of people accused of being communist or queer or both. 
Um, so, you know, kind of like a, what we've seen, what you and your, you know, young life has seen in the last 30 years under the Trump administration is a very um, extreme version of, of this. But in the 50s, McCarthyism is like this paranoid uh, attitude that there's, you know, queer people or communists or, you know, treasonous people out to destroy the nation. And that was, a, 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 you know, a, had a very, you know, it was expressed within the military, but other branches of government too. Um, so by the time you get to the 1990s, under Bill Clinton, who came into office in 93, the doctrine of, you know, the official doctrine of the United States was don't ask, don't tell, which is we're going to tolerate you as a gay person in the military, but we better not hear about it. Don't ever say anything, and you're, you certainly can't act on this. And so, you know, the uh, gay rights lawyers, the LGBTQ rights lawyers would say, well, your mere existence is, you know, that what do you mean don't, don't tell? What, what is tell? Is it an oral expression or, you know, um, is it just who I am? But my mere presence here is, is, is dangerous. So it was a fraught and terrible policy. It, it kept people in the closet, afraid to, you know, afraid of, of being found out. Um, so ultimately under Obama, when they got don't tell, uh, th this was considered a really great triumph, and I, I think it should be regarded as a, a, as a positive, you know, movement or positive event or um, development. But still, within the military, there's so much uh, misogyny. The, the rates of sexual assault by men against other men and against women are still really disturbing. And so, just because you don't have a policy in place that restricts gay people or queer people from being in the military it doesn't mean the culture of the military hasn't in some respects gotten worse because of the rise of right-wing attitudes within the ranks and misogyny and homophobia and especially transphobia so it's kind of you know it's interesting to look at the military because it is an instrument of the state of the government so what it allows and doesn't allow is reflective of the values of that nation um, so it, that's why I, I think it's important to ask the question you're asking to sort of deduce from that what, where we're at as a nation when it comes to the treatment of LGBTQ people generally. Right. And on a similar note, we've been talking a lot in general in the world about police brutality, especially this month. And historically, the police have played a role in the oppression of queer people. Do you think that uh, policing continues to play a part in this today. I do. I really much. I very much do. And I think it should be noted that uh, the kind of police brutality that's been most evident within queer communities has been that which is um, perpetrated against people of color, queer people of color. I mean, if you look at the Stonewall riots, you know, the famous riots at Stonewall Bar in 1969. Um, they, that bar had been the subject of police harassment, for the lo location of police harassment for a long, long time. And the cops would go in and, and extract bribes from people or threaten to tell them, you know, to publish their names in the paper if they didn't pay off the cops, either the bar, the owner or the, or the patrons. So 
the people that were at that bar were fed up with this kind of police raiding and harassing them and endangering them. And it's, you know, finally becoming more openly acknowledged that the two people that were the most powerful resistors at night of the first night of the several nights of riots were a, a pair of trans uh, women of color, you know, um, Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson. So, you know, it's interesting when you look at police brutality, for sure white queer people have been subject to police brutality. That's not deniable. But where you've seen probably more of it is within working class communities where, you know, people are seen as more disposable or, and, and queer of color communities where similar attitudes take place. Because police brutality is, you know, based upon a kind of authority to a sovereignty, you know, of, to be able to go and act out in, in whatever fashion you want in the name of the law. And if you're dealing with a population of people who are afraid to be out, who don't want to be disowned, who don't want to lose their jobs, you know, the cops had a lot of power over people in that situation. So the more we are able to come out and be out, the better things can be for, you know, making claims against police brutality. But as we've seen with the, you know, even this month, you know, George Floyd and all the many cases that preceded him and Tony McCade, these are instances where that kind of power is played out on black bodies with a, with a very intense uh, brutality, you know. Um, so it, it, this is where we can see these intersections and connections between the way, you know, the way that that kind of masculinity, which it often is, it's not, there, there are women in police, uh, in police forces who commit atrocities too, but there's a certain kind of racial formation and gender formation that's expressed in that kind of brutality. And, and so I would, you know, be... I would stress that we need to kind of look at all those dynamics, what's going on with the police constituting themselves as, you know, superior in these acts of brutality. I really agree. And also recently we've seen the Supreme Court ruling against discriminatory firings of gay and lesbian and trans workers um, as a long overdue step towards gay rights in America. Are there other nationwide or statewide legislations that you really think, you know, what, what ones would be good steps in trying to advance equality? Well, that was a, that was a really important decision that came down, um, you know, and it was a squeaker, as all these decisions are. I mean, they're very, you know, um, nobody, we, we, we didn't assume it was going to, to, to play out that way, I'm very happy that it did. I think within a day or so of that, um, the white, the Trump administration made a declaration that trans people should not be treated with particular care in hospital settings. You know, you, you've got these different levels of, you know, one step forward, one step back. I think, I, I feel very strongly that universal health care, it would benefit everybody. And universal health care that, that provides a um, special consideration for the needs of trans people 
and non-binary people when it comes to the healthcare setting would be, you know, it's kind of like civil rights. It would be good for everyone, you know. So even though that's not always thought of as a LGBTQ specific issue, because it isn't, it's broader than that. I think the matter of healthcare uh, is is huge right now in our society, and it has been for a long time. So I would put that one way up at the top of the list. Um, and then I think also, uh, I think that you know there there's prob- I feel strongly that education needs to be um, supported right now. Again, universal idea here, but I, as an educator myself, know how important it is for students who have the opportunity to go to college to be able to take classes that help them to understand their history, that help them to understand their, you know, where they are in the world, uh, whatever discipline they they find that they can do that in. And I feel like right now um, there's an assault on truth that's happening at the highest levels and that we need to really keep our, we need to not keep our universities and colleges, but build on them, allow them to grow and allow them to be open and affordable to much larger numbers of people. So, because I think, I think queer identity and queer life depends on us knowing that we've been here for a long time and we want to be here for a long time into the future. Definitely. And if anything, I think the COVID-19 epidemic has shown how much we've already needed universal health care. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to keep talking about this, but we're all out of time. Again, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. Sure. Thanks a lot for having me. Of course. This has been Office Hours on KUCI. I'm Sibel Kaler, and that was Dr. Jennifer Terry, a professor of Gender and Sexuality Studies at UCI. If you'd like to listen to past episodes, you can go online at bit.ly slash officehourskuci or find us on kuci.org. If you'd like to finish out this Pride Month by donating some money, The Marsha P. Johnston Institute is a great organization that benefits black trans people. The Trevor Project and the LGBT National Help Center are also great organizations to donate to. Listeners, as always, I hope you have a great day. Stay safe and be kind to each other out there.